The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai ki a The Fold e mihi nei ko Duncan Grieve tokungwa. Uh, my guest this week on The Fold is Emma Espiner, who I've been wanting to get on this podcast for for quite some time, but uh, she's busy. She's very, very busy for reasons we'll get to. I'm sure regular listeners to this podcast will know who uh, Emma is. She's, if we just kind of narrowly consider her role in the media, she's a, a commentator and columnist, essayist, and has also produced a podcast, which I think might be the best podcast New Zealand's ever ever made. That's certainly how I'm feeling right now. And that podcast is about her her day job, her real career, which is as 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 a doctor. And the podcast is called Getting Better. It's produced by Bird of Paradise, uh, which is Noel McCarthy and uh, John Daniels' production company. They do fantastic work and was made for RNZ under the, the New Zealand on Air's Joint Innovation Fund, which is now sadly defunct. But um, it chronicles her last year of med school, during which she basically went went around the country and spoke to what you might call the the Maori health system, which is really not any kind of formalised thing at all. It's it's a bunch of Maori health practitioners working within the Pakeha system and trying to make it work for Maori and doing incredible work, but doing it in, in spite of rather than be- because of the system and. You know, it stretches from Northland to the to the Bay of Plenty. Um, it it goes all around the country, and it meets academics, um, midwives, doctors, and uh, and and patients who've been on the the you know who who represent like one tiny element of of what is essentially a broken system. It's an absolute masterpiece. And it, it's it's been out pretty much bang on a year, but it, um, when I first started trying to speak to Emma, it just won the Voyager Award for, for Best Podcast. So we talk about uh, getting better, about the Māori health system, and about the way that the media sort of interacts with healthcare and uh, and with Te Ao Māori more broadly. She has fascinating things to say on both those fronts. We talk about how how you balance being a sort of a participant in and a, a student of a system while also being a kind of a conscience and critic to it and about how her life is. You know, there's a reason why she took two months to, to show up and it's um, because she works at Middlemore. When when she showed up, she was it was around midday and, and that night she was starting a, a 10 p.m. till 8 a.m. shift in one of the country's most extraordinary and um, high-pressure medical environments um, in South Auckland. So it's it's a lot. She's honestly just an, an extraordinary person. You know, could if she were just a a you know a journalist and a and a communicator, she would be you know one of the most 
prized and you know awarded in the country but that's just her side hustle her main thing is is being a doctor and yeah that that those two roles and the 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 vision into both worlds that that gives you make her essentially unique in in New Zealand I think uh, before we get into it, I have to uh, thank our sponsor. Uh, the Fold is proudly supported by Vodafone. Uh, the spin-off runs on Vodafone's network technology. Uh, we actually just hired our um, first CTO, uh, Ben Gracewood, who will rely on that technology and kind of help shape the, our, our, our evolution into a technology company that operates in the media rather than a media company that uses technology. Anyway, this is Emma Espinar on The Fold. Kia ora, Emma, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Um, we, we tried to book this like two months ago when you very deservedly won the Voyager for Best Podcast, and uh, it's, it's, it's taken a while. Do you want to... Uh, that might be because... Your day job is not <laughs> podcast host, it's, it's junior doctor now. Do you want to mm. um, tell us about what the last few months have been like for you, moving into that role, absolutely full noise? Um, I think it's probably best that we're talking now rather than a few months ago because the first six months is and was horrific. Um, I knew that. So um, I have a cousin who's a few years ahead of me and she wrote me a letter at the start of this year and she said, um, it'll be horrible and you'll hate it. And then somewhere at the six-month mark, it'll start to make sense and it'll feel less awful all the time. And so we're there now, and she was right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a really um, scary transition because you go from being um, a student and everything is kind of manageable because you've studied it and you've supported, you're not really making any decisions, um, to being a doctor. Um, and not only that, the hospital where I work and which I love um, at Middlemore is under-resourced, overwhelmed with really sick patients. Um, and so you're not only doing this thing for the first time and having a real impact on people's lives, but you're having to do it at pace. Um, and you don't know how to filter which decisions are you should be anxious about, so you're just anxious about every decision. Um, you go home, you dream about everything that you've done, everything you've prescribed, and then you get up and you do it again the next day. So <laughs> it takes a bit of getting used to. That's a phenomenal word. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to Troy Kingy a couple of weeks ago who's in the middle of his 10 albums and 10 genres and 10 years project and I asked him whether he felt trapped by a decision he made a long time ago. <laughs> That's just a, you know, no disrespect, but an artistic one. You've mm. made this decision six years ago, just just had your daughter and now you're... Really, Reaping uh, the rewards of that decision. <laughs> and and the, the, the thing for you is like there are all these amazing parallel careers where you could have an impact but have a sort of a normal quote-unquote life. Yeah, I think and actually Guy, on, my husband, said that to me about three months in. He was like, are you sure? Like this seems like not that much fun. Um, and you, you know, stressed all the time and anxious all the time. And I was like, well, it's, I actually, I don't have another punt at another career now because I've already made a big deal of doing this one so I have to stick it out but um, the thing about medicine um, all, all those other parallel kind of things that I could potentially do is that none of it really happened for me until I started training to be a doctor and so I think that they all have to be I have to do all the things 
all at once. I don't, you know, like I have these fantasies sometimes of just becoming a writer and going and doing that. But I think the reality is I need the, um, that intensity of experience day to day, um, you know, smashing up against other people's lives and the dynamism of a hospital to spin the wheel for all the creative stuff. So that's fortunate for me. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely given yourself that. Do you want to, I normally um, don't, do backstories on the fold um, for a variety of reasons, but I feel like yours is, is so interesting. I'm very curious about how you got here, essentially, mm. um, professionally, that, you know, because you've been through Parliament, you have this, you know, as much as you wonder whether you could have, you absolutely could have, like, an extraordinary career as a, as a writer or a broadcaster or anything else, but you have very deliberately made a decision to go right into the more of this thing. Yeah. Do you want to tell, tell us about your career and how you kind of made that huge fateful decision? Um, I guess, I mean, I, I never really went after anything until I decided to go for medicine. So like from high school through to my first degree in art history and classics to the career and recruitment, the time I spent at Parliament, they were just... Um, either cool people that I'd followed into jobs or things that I'd had a passing interest in um, and I'd just kind of been okay at them and that was um, how my life had trundled along. And then I was pregnant with our daughter and I thought, shit, how do I explain to her what this job is that I do? Um, because I went to talk to, I went and visited my nana in Takaka where um, my mum's from and she said, oh, you know, what What are you doing now? And I said, oh, I'm a, an executive search associate <laughs> she's like mm, that's nice dear she had no idea what it was and I just kind of had one of those moments where I thought you know my job's kind of made up you know like it's not something that really matters and strong strong disagree game. as someone who's, who's <laughs> constantly trying to find people but but that's all right yeah, I can well, understand fair, feeling fair. that way yeah um and so I wanted to do something meaningful um and I mean that's a good point actually like there are people doing every kind of job that exists and if you find meaning in it then that's cool but it's, what's, it's about you ultimately definitely, right? and I had mentors in that field that, that feel that way but for me I just thought you know in the zombie apocalypse like what are my skills <laughs> 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 and then what you know what am I going to tell my daughter about what my purpose is you know was it, was it just to make money and buy into this business and then be a rich kind of bored person so, yeah, I, and I did a very boring kind of um, career assessment thing of, of myself because I didn't, uh, medicine was never on the cards. Um, and I listed every career I could think of, put them all on pros and cons. Um, and medicine was the only thing that came out the other end. And I was, I was tired of being the only brown person in the rooms that I was in. So we, I think, for the three years that I was with this executive search firm, there's only ever one other brown person who came through the doors and the rest were, you know, didn't look like me, didn't look like my community. I wanted intellectual challenge and something that I could do for the rest of my life. Like I, I don't have a vision of retiring or anything like that. So yeah, medicine seemed to fit and I had no science background. So that was a an unlikely decision. Um, and it's just because I have incredibly supportive husband, parents and friends, they were either too scared to say, this seems like a fucking terrible <laughs> decision, <laughs> um, kept it to themselves, or were just like, cool, you know, go for it. So, and then, so we did it. And then, you know, the first, like going back to uni is hard as, a, as an adult um, student, especially with a child, and especially in that kind of competitive first year where there's, you know, a thousand odd students trying to get into medicine. Um, and you're the 30-year-old, you know, mother of one trying to, 
I didn't actually, I was going to say try and foot it with the kids, but I didn't really ever try that. I just put my head down and tried to get through the year. But um, every year it felt more like my place because you develop those relationships. You find people that are like you and you find meaning in it. And then even though this year has been horrible, it still feels like the place that I'm meant to be. At what point on that journey did you sort of feel confident or, or start start to um, communicate about what you were seeing and experiencing within the system? Yeah, well, that was kind of all accidental as well. So um, so when, just to take you back a step, like in 2009 when I met my husband, he was the political editor for TVNZ at the time, and our constant dinner party conversation was the death of the media. You know, there was that, um, I think there was that movie that was about... Um, so the New York Times, there was something, there was a, a movie and it was like, this is the end of the traditional media as we know it. And it was very doom and gloom. It was, um, you know, everyone's going to be out of work. Um, people are going to be uninformed. You know, there Remember was... Remember it well. <laughs> it, was, it was a great moment. Yeah. And so um, that, I remember that very clearly. And then once we were in Auckland, because we moved up from Auckland so that I could do this job as in this executive re- uh, recruitment firm and he went to work for 60 Minutes. I think with the splintering of the traditional media and the emerging of new entities like this one, there was also this parallel push for more diversity. Um, and they're, they're, actually, they're really aligned, which you, you would be aware of, because as the gatekeepers became less powerful, then there were more opportunities for people who hadn't had time to tell their stories or space to do it or people that supported them to do it. So um, I got offered a, you know, like a panel slot on the Paul Henry show. Um, wow. And I was like, oh, fuck, I've got no qualification for this, but neither does any other party person on there. That's the thing so, about panels, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had an in-home media trainer, so and Guy was like, you know, this is, you might as well, like, it's no skin off your nose, you can easily manage him. Um, and Manage Paul Henry? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that, you know, who knows what else will come from it. So I just started doing that, and, um, and then a year later, um, Newsroom offered me a column. And again, it was kind of like, oh, well, other people seem to be doing this without any <laughs> talent for it. So let's <laughs> just like have a go. Yeah. And then naturally you talk about what you're saying. I think it did take me a little while to start really critiquing the health system because, you know, I started doing that, I think, in my third year. And then, you know, you, you have to be more mindful of the thing that you're talking about if you're going into that as a job and being conscious of your junior role in that space. So I just wanted to make sure that I was really well-informed when I started, you know, giving it a go. That's what I was curious about, I guess, is that, um, you know, it's, I think what you've written and, and obviously ultimately created the podcast about has been very powerful, but it's also very brave. You know, this is a, mm. you're saying things that the, the system is somewhere between sort of self-conscious, belligerent, mm. um, dismissive, or acutely aware of in various doses and places, but uh, certainly... It doesn't necessarily want certain parts of it. Don't want anyone to say it, and others would certainly mm. use your your youth and all of the other identities you carry against you. And that did you f- when you started to speak? Did how, how did the system kind of respond? How did you feel that response? I think yeah. So this is a really important place to reflect on privilege because um, so first of all, I'm older and so have some more life experience. I'm married to a broadcaster, so a lot of the people who might have pushed back against me might 
potentially recognize the name and think, mm, I don't know if I want to be, <laughs> you know, known in that respect. And also the time. So um, our, you know, my mentors and our lecturers and the people that have been pushing for equity for decades have done all of that work when it was far more dangerous to do that and um, more risky career-wise. So I felt that it was a calculated risk and that it was worth taking because why else was I there? But, you know, the journey's been different for different people. Like I'm aware of people, you know, 10, 15 years more senior to me who felt the environment was so toxic for them that they had to wait until they were senior doctors before they could start to act. Um, And that's, that's obviously entirely valid as well because you... You know, if you want to change the system from within, you do have to still be in that system. Um, and so people have made calculated decisions all the way along, and mine felt, yeah, fairly safe for me. And I haven't really experienced any downside to that, to be honest. That's kind of gratifying to hear, in a way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That, I mean, I'm sure people think it. And there's been, you know, you get the comments on social media, which I don't read, and I've had some weird emails and things like that. But, but by and large, it's been incredibly positive, yeah. So coming to the podcast, which you know, I think is, is some kind of a masterpiece and it functions as both the, a fascinating piece of storytelling and also just a crushing indictment of a health system that is just so dramatically failing Māori. Mm. Um, and again, that's a whole new medium beyond mm, writing or, yeah. or panel shows to, to get into while you're you know, sort of desperately trying to learn to navigate the thing and to become a doctor um sort of what possessed you <laughs> it was fucking noel like <laughs> <laughs> we were just sitting around at her house one day and i was telling her these stories about what i was saying and she was like this is a podcast and i thought okay that sounds straightforward <laughs> 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 and it did at the time you know like it was it was like cool like i'll hang out with my friend We'll spend a couple of weeks doing it, and it'll be all good. And then because you could was, have done that, there was a that was also a podcast. You didn't though. No, no, we didn't. And it, um, yeah, it became its own thing. And I think that's what you. I think anyone that's done any work um, in Tel Maori realizes there's like co-papa within co-papa. You're never just about the one thing. There's always you know 15 other things going on. And so for us, it became that. Um, it wasn't just telling a handful of stories. It was like, um, and we had Gabriel Baker involved, which was really important because it had to be ticker. It had to um, respect the story sovereignty of the people that we were talking to. It had to not just be about doctors. It had to have, um, you know, authentic stories from the people that experience the system, from nurses, from midwives, you know, everybody, which every time you added another layer, added more time and effort and getting it right. But, um, but yeah, I'm really proud of what came out. Um, and I'm really grateful for working with Noel, who's just exceptional at everything, and and Gabriel, who just kept us really well supported from a um, from a tikanga perspective. And also, she's like a fucking genius who's read every piece of health research that's ever been written in this country. So she was the intellectual grunt as well. <laughs> so obviously, you would have been familiar with the system and the particular way that it interacts with Māori. And there mm. were certain people who you, you had relationships with pre-existing, but there must have been some kind of, I mean, the sense you get of it as a listener is that there's this joined up totality of, of, of a vision of, of all these layered failures and also all these people who are basically hot-wiring around those to to make it work for their community. But it's in spite of, not because of the system. Yeah, and I think that's what you, um, what you begin to understand. And it wasn't so much that I got that from training to 
be a doctor, but it was from the work that I did working for Hapai Te Haura, which is a Māori public health organisation. So I went there on a like a summer internship thing at the end of third year and then just stayed on and ended up as their national comms head for the rest of the time that I was at medical school. So they sit outside of, so it's not clinical, They all their contracts come from the government, but um, I got to see all the little things that happen structurally where they their contracts um, were worth less than those that had gone to Pākehā organisations. They had higher compliance costs because they had to report more frequently. Um, they were less trusted and our, um, our measures of what worked for our people weren't the measures that the ministry was using. And so we had to always translate our measures of effectiveness into something that they understood and just kind of slam it into those boxes. So that was better for me in terms of learning how our community works around the system than actually going through medical school and my clinical training. Because you don't really see the community that much. You see people, there's not not on a... And that's kind of, that's what we talk about when we talk about cultural safety is like diminishing the power imbalance between us as healthcare professionals and, and patients. Um, and when you see someone in hospital, they're at their most vulnerable and you're at your most powerful. So it's quite hard to articulate that within that environment or the, or the way that people work around the system in the hospital setting. But in general practice and the community, it's, it's, there's a lot more flexibility to do that and see that. So with the podcast, do you did like what what has been the response to it from the various people mm. with whom you because you you don't do something like that without wanting it to impact various audiences, yeah. you know, for Māori healthcare people, it's like potentially to be seen mm. for it might well be for government to really just shake them from their the the sort of apathy of mm. of it's just too big to to solve or we'll get to it next year, you know, like. Has there been a response and how would you kind of characterise the, you know, like in terms of it, if you were trying to say here's a dream outcome versus what what, what has come from it? Mm. Um, I think so primarily I wanted my um, colleagues who work in health to feel seen and validated and for our patients to understand that that we get it and that we're wanting to do better. I've been really pleasantly surprised by how it's been received. So it's a teaching resource in our university, not just in medicine, but in nursing. And I think the paramedics are using it as well. Um, I get messages from students all the time. So I've just listened to podcasts. There's quite a few students that have been on my medical teams, you know, um, while I've been this year at, at Middlemore who have listened, senior doctors who have, uh, but that's just listening, right? It's not tangible action. So the um, I recently heard from a doctor at Wellington Hospital, which is in the first episode, which is where the story... The Wallaces. Tina and Colin of the Wallaces, yeah. <sighs> really difficult to hear their experience. Um, and this doctor said to me that they've used that to change the way that they look after whānau in ICU. So that had a direct and measurable impact on on the way they do things. Um, and I text Tina and I said, oh, this is so cool, you know. And she was... she's And she's great. And she's out telling her story in, in her community and in the settings that she can speak into. So that's, yeah, I think that kind of multi-layer of effect is really what we were after, is that there's a difference, there's a decision, there's there's change, um, but also that, that the people that we talk to feel like their story was validated and um, and meaning, meant, meant something, you know. Because that's all, I think what you realise in health, like one of the, th- you know, we always make mistakes and when you look through, I have a morbid fascination with the Health and Disability Commissioner's website and all the complaints because the majority of them got to the point of being a complaint because someone felt that they weren't heard 
like you would be amazed at what people will tolerate in terms of even even getting a wrong operation or something something outrageous if you're genuinely and authentically sorry and you commit to not doing it ever again to try to learn yeah so like it's human nature but i think that's yeah so that was really important to us that something that there would be measurable change so that's the kind of people with proximity to the front. Mm. That's their response. Have you, you know, obviously there have been announcements around a Māori Health, Health Authority, which you touch on, but it mm. was kind of early stages. Do you, do you believe that the top of the system, that the end of the DHBs and so on, will ultimately lead to better health outcomes and a, and a more all-of-system change? I like that the Māori Health Authority now has commissioning power. So um, initially the Heather Simpson Review didn't want it to have commissioning power. It just was going to be a policy body and would make suggestions. So I'm pleased that that's been put in place. I'm sceptical about whether reform is the answer just in, its, in and of itself. You know, we have one of the most um, reformed health systems in the world. You know, like we just seem to be addicted to it and it hasn't had a measurable difference on equity. But you have to be optimistic. I mean, the change is going to happen whether we like it or not. And so we have to make sure that we're contributing to making that. This is the health system that my colleagues and I will be working in. So we have a vested interest into making that work properly. I think from what I understand about what works best in terms of Māori health is that it always is best for us when it comes from us. And so centralising too much, I, I worry about losing that community you know, just the nuances of what a community needs and a community knows what its needs are and often actually just needs someone to resource it. So I hope that that doesn't get lost with the centralisation. And the way that that would work properly is having enough representatives from all of our diverse communities within that entity and empowered to be involved in those decisions and guide that policy making. So, yeah, it's a huge ask. But there are some, th- you know, there's some really easy things that you can that you can just act on. Like the Northern DHB, um, there was a huge stink when they decided to prioritise by ethnicity. Um, and Nicholas Jones at the Herald, who's you know very good covering health stuff, um, was was laying some of this stuff out, and people were up in arms about it. But it's just if it is a measurable indicator of increased mortality and morbidity, then you you should act on that. You know, it's like. Paparangi Reid, who's one of our professors at the University of Auckland, says that racism is in action in the face of need, and that's what we've been doing for so long. So there are things that you can just go ahead and do, <laughs> but the people have lacked the will to do it. Yeah, and it, feel, it does feel like it's a political or, or a Always. messaging kind yeah. of, a fear of the electorate. Yeah, kind of and I think actually back to your point about why I haven't, you know, whether I was worried about suffering the consequences with a podcast, I think that's where my confused CV is helpful because, you know, the thing about working in Parliament is that you, it's not that you lose respect, but you lose awe of those big, powerful people because you see them at their absolute worst. And so once you're not really interested in being afraid of people at that level, you kind of, everyone's on an even playing field from there. So I've just felt equipped to deal with whatever came my way. <laughs> we'll just take a quick break and then come back with more from Emma Espinet. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O-Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market. The opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. 
Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Um, and we're back with, with more from Emma Espin. And now, I, that what, what you just touched on before kind of you know, speaks to, in some ways, the tension that you describe in the podcast about the sort of reforming from within the system versus um, wanting to sort of tear it down from without, which you describe as both existing within healthcare, but also within Tao Māori mm. more generally. You know, do you want to sort of talk about that? Because in some ways, your role as a communicator and critic of the health system while still work, means while still being a junior doctor mm. and you know, going to work at 10 o'clock tonight, <laughs> my gosh, you know, means that you can kind of do both at the same time. Is that something that you think you'll continue to do? Yes, and thank you for highlighting that because it's something that I've been thinking about this year because as you, we're all at risk of becoming complicit and you can't kid yourself that you're not that you're not heading in that direction, you know, like, so you become institutionalised the minute you step into that into that job, you know, and so there are things that I'm numb to now that I wouldn't have been when I first encountered them. And actually, we've, we've found this throughout the podcast because it was so useful having Noelle, who doesn't have a medical background, because we'd be talking about things and she'd be like, put that in, that's amazing. And I think, oh, that's just like routine now. Do you sort of stop seeing things in a way just because you experience them yeah, over and over? Yeah, and so um, that's that's why that having this broad community of activism is really important because I need to know that I need to be honest with myself about what I'm pushing for and whether I'm still pushing hard enough and to have that critical analysis of my, you know, like at some point you have to be pragmatic as well about your own career and and. and you know, when you do bring things up, when you don't, you know, what do you let slide? What's your, you know, um, what's your absolute bottom line? And so you need to be in touch with what's the what's the thinking from our, um, you know, our leaders who are um, talking about health equity and what needs to happen. So I'm really always reading, like, so Paparangi Reid, Elena Curtis, Reese Jones, Donna Cormack. So what, you know, what are they advocating for? They're academics, so they're not in the clinical environment anymore, but they're, they're very much connected to what we should be doing. Um, and then what are my students saying? You know, what are they asking for? We've got this campaign at the moment from, a, um, I think he's a, maybe a third or fourth year student who's... Um, developed this campaign to make pronoun badges for all medical students, which the university didn't support and he got all this funding through social media and stuff like that. So it's it's just being really honest with yourself about the decisions that you're making because it's so easy to fall into this because people also, you know, they 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 love that you're doing this stuff and then they want you like the brown mascot for the thing because, you know, oh, we've got this person involved and, and that makes us look better. Um, so... Yeah, every decision has to be scrutinised about, you know, what is what is what is, is this consistent with my values? Is this actually advancing what I want it to advance? Am I at risk of becoming complicit? So that's like super relaxing on top of everything. That's else what I was about to job. say is that like the, the job alone <laughs> yeah. would be enough. Yeah. And But we're all doing this. So every I don't know, a single Maori woman who's not having that um you know, mental conversation with herself in every field that she's in, you know, because very few of us have the luxury of working in Māori-only environments where we're understood and supported in every way that we need to be. You know, we're all we're all working in these um, spaces that aren't always safe for us, so um, that's just how it is. <laughs> to what extent do you, you know, you're, you know, you're obviously very familiar with the 
media on multiple levels. And to what extent do you believe that the media has played a role in sort of a almost like a permission setting for the for it to be this bad for this long and exist as a like it has the potential to be an accelerator of reform but also a resistor Mm. you know like I read your piece earlier about you know your sort of final column for Mm. newsroom about um which talked about the the University of Otago's mirror of society policies and the extent to which those were you know vigorously resisted by um by a columnist who you don't name (laughs) um you know what 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 do you sort of Mm. see the the media's role in in or complicity in this current situation is so it's all parallel right so we talk about the opportunities that I've had in the media have been through that disruption of the traditional media um, and the same thing is happening with the truth telling about um, what is happening in our country and our history and that's been through that splintering you know and in the past absolutely um, the media has had a role to play in um, minimising these issues and victim blaming and being inaccurate and and actively harmful towards Māori in health, you know, because it is it often centres around health because when you think about poor health outcomes, you know, we know that they're, they're structurally derived and that when you talk about things like obesity and you look at communities where more Māori live and the density of fast food outlets in those communities of where the pokies get targeted, you know, you, it's, it's undeniable. But for a long time, our media didn't have either an interest or um, was actively ignorant about those those drivers of poor health. So it would just be, you know, fat and lazy and stupid. So, And then you get right up close to that with, with the Wallaces. You yeah, know. and you see that, yeah, and that harm played out. And so... I think with the uh, reckoning that the media has gone through, um, so with the availability of different platforms, with more diverse voices, with a, a, a greater commitment actually to what journalism is meant to be, which is which is telling the truth. And this is why it's kind of interesting when you have people decrying cancel culture and, oh, it's woke and it's this and that and the other thing. It's like, actually, no, you guys should be offended that your profession didn't do its job properly. The um, inaccuracies in the reporting that's highlighted as racist, you know, that even if you don't care about racism, you should just be ashamed that your profession told lies. <laughs> totally. Well, and, and was, was, you know, actively involved in, you know, shoring up a system which, which privileged mm. a, a white Majority. I don't think you're going to win them on that, but, <laughs> but but I think you can, you know, you can say because they don't, you know, like you're not even allowed to say white privilege to these kinds of people. But if you can say to them, look, you weren't actually even doing the, the basic job of journalism, which mm. is to to get the facts right. Um, that's somewhere to start. <laughs> I do think I don't know. I mean, I, I, I you're right in terms of that phrase is, mm. is, is triggering um, to, to, to sensitive audiences. As is triggering. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, but it does feel like when you look upon, you know, we, we recently had a um, a documentary uh, on the spinoff um, about uh, Mike Smith and um, you know taking a, a chainsaw to the bone on mm. One Tree Hill and. I remember I'd only just come to New Zealand as a, I think I would have been like 12 years old when that happened. And I remember the coverage. I remember there was this very you know, simple way of understanding mm. what had happened. And then watching that now, you, you sort of, it, it feels different. And I think you look at some examples of 
reporting from, you know, it's really not that long ago mm. and of what was an acceptable column to publish or acceptable cartoon to publish as recently as like 2017 mm. when Al Nisbet was at large. You know, you sort of see just how reinforcing of just these super ugly stereotypes, yeah. you know. But it's also so limiting. I think, you know, even even if you step aside from the harm that they've caused, it's like, it's what a boring vision for New Zealand, you know. Like, um, it robs us of much more complex and interesting stories. So if you look at that recent piece by um, Professor Richard Shaw, who wrote for The Conversation about how his um, Irish immigrant ancestors came to New Zealand and... Um, were given confiscated Māori land in Taranaki and then within a generation their economic prospects had changed from being basically impoverished peasant farmers to being, you know, landed gentry. Um, and that was all off the back of policies which, you know, disinherited Māori of our land. And so that piece was great because it's like, shit, that's a really, that's a much more interesting story than the one that we'd been told. Um, and there's reconciliation that comes from that once you know people acknowledge that that's the truth and and then he draws the line from you know all the intergenerational wealth stuff that accumulates over time and how he's been privileged by that and I just think that's just so much more hopeful for our country to have those kinds of stories out there rather than you know why is to being rammed down our throats <laughs> yeah yeah so on on today and and it's kind of you know I mean obviously it's a current basically a bunch of media has has um, has started using it in a, in a fairly small and contained and, mm. and not non-confrontational way, and it's been taken a particular way by a segment of the electorate, I guess. But you know what they're trying to do, and I think you know, hopefully it is doing, is is saying that this media is not just for Pakeha New Zealand; that there is that it is it is for more than just that, and and that also feels like it's a theme of getting better that the health system just by Making some some accommod whether it's accommodations or just being more kind of culturally aware or aware of the the um, the nature of the of, of our society that it can open up to and and be a lot more effective deliverer of of what it needs to yeah and it's and it's that um, yeah they they the, they they are the same in a way as that you know when you take your baseline as Pākehā New Zealand then it doesn't work for anyone else or doesn't work as well. Um, and it's the same in the media. And I heard your conversation with, with the minister and talking about, like, you know, who Morning Report's for. And, you know, th those kinds of audiences are well served by what exists currently and won't lose out if we create things for other people as well. In health, it's incredibly urgent because that Pākehā baseline has meant that Māori aren't getting good care and aren't getting the right care, um, even... even things as basic as, you know, the um, entry point for cancer screening, for bowel cancer screening isn't isn't right because it's the Pākehā baseline, not Māori, which is younger. And yet the, they haven't made the easy decision, which would be to screen Māori earlier for all reasons. There's always reasons and it's, it's resourcing. It's, you know, we don't have um, the plan to roll out at the moment. You know, there's always something, but you have to bring it back to that, you know, what is this is an action in the face of need. And if you're not doing the right thing for Māori, you're saying you can wait and receive less care and less quality care while we just carry on treating the baseline Pākehā with best practice. The, the diverse audiences thing I think is really fascinating. So um, everyone's now kind of acknowledged that you need to deliver to people that might not have been well served by the media in the past. But still, I haven't seen a shift in leadership positions that tells me that that's 
that these organisations are serious about sustainable change. So it's all very well and good to put out a pitch saying, oh, we want, you know, uh, young Pacific audiences, so, you know, these production companies or groups to send in their pitches. But if the person that's sitting in the commissioning chair doesn't, has only ever commissioned for the morning report audience on the terrace, um, how will they recognise good quality work that comes across their desk or pitches from these communities that they haven't served before? So, and how will they even go make sure that the whole community knows, knows yeah. that it wants them rather than just the same people who... Exactly. Because there, there's a danger that it's just... Uh, yeah, well, it's just it's a box tick, you know. We need to get some Pacific stuff and some Māori stuff and maybe some, you know, queer stuff as well and then we're all good. So, it, you know, it has to be really radical structural change as well as putting that those nice things out the front. So, um, And I know there are some people in some of the funding bodies who are aware of that, um, but some organisations are slower to shift than others... And actually don't recognise that that's a gap for them, which is concerning. So do you, you know, as someone who's now, you know, right right up close to, to both these things, do you, and, and you know, you're at the end of that, that sort of six-year journey and, and through both of them, do you feel, you know, characterise your emotions? Your, your, you know, are you hopeful about the way that the interaction of, you know, journalism and communications and, and health can start to solve these wounds? Yeah, and I think, yes, absolutely, because um, medicine has always been about storytelling. So we um, we get patients to tell us their stories. We then tell those stories to our colleagues. Sometimes we write those stories up um, for medical journals as research, you know, like it is storytelling as a profession. Um, and we've been, we have a responsibility to tell the stories that um, will influence change for our patients um, and it's the most powerful advocacy tool that I have available to me like when I look at the, where I want to spend my time you know I have to do some research projects for my you know for eventually for specialist training applications and for my CV and also because I like hanging out with my colleagues but but the cut through is going to the media telling a story creating some energy around something and then you know not allowing an issue to be ignored I think with our politicians, you need to make it impossible for them to ignore you rather than try and influence them behind the scenes to do the right thing. Like, great example, Kitty Tapu Allen this year when she had her cervical cancer diagnosis, incredibly brave public sharing her story. The um, self-swabs for cervical um, cancer screening, which had been, this, this is years of advocacy by like with research and with experts and going through the right channels and the government would not fund it, magically got funded once Kitty Tapu started talking about it and, and sharing her public journey. Now, the government denies that that had anything to do with it, but it's just like a remarkable coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that's the power of storytelling and doing it the right way. Well, I mean, I think that you're about as good a storyteller as exists <laughs> anywhere <laughs> in the world. And I think that... I feel like you are going into a health system and it should be kind of trembling but excited, you know, like freaked out over what you're going to do to it, but also <laughs> the parts of it have been looking for someone to kind of break out. That's, um, yeah, they're going to, they're getting a force. So um, anyway, I'll let you go back to... to <laughs> Preparing for my night shift. Yeah. yeah, trembling and excited is probably appropriate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for coming up here, mate. Mm, really appreciate that. it. <laughs> 
That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, Podcast Manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.